Good morning. We're going to read from Philippians chapter 3, just two verses this morning, as the starting point for today's message. Paul is writing, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Let's pray for a minute. Father, thank you for the opportunity for us to gather here today and to worship you. Thank you for allowing us to to lift our praises to you, even in the midst of that Old Testament imagery that we were singing this morning. It reminded me of the temple where the the incense went up day and night representing prayers to you. Lord, we don't need incense. You hear our prayers directly in this day. You invite us to come through the name of Jesus and as your sons and daughters, as your very own children who are known by the Father and who are welcomed into your presence. So we thank you for the wonder that you, the Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, care enough about each one of us that you hear our prayers, no matter how small or large, no matter how urgent or how harried we are. You care about the details of our day. You care about the problems that we carry on our shoulders. You care about the people in our lives. You care about our priorities. And we ask that you would work in our lives, that you would help us to solve the various issues that we each have to work through today and during this next week. We ask that you would walk with us and give us that sense of balance, that we'd know truth in the midst of falsehood in this world, that we'd walk in light rather than in darkness, that we'd know your grace each and every day. Lord, we ask that you would use this time to to guide us, to strengthen us, to make us wiser, to to give us greater understanding of your word, and even more about how to apply it in the midst of our lives and in the midst of this world. So God, as we look into your word today and as we continue to worship and as we lift up our prayers, we ask that you would meet us here in this place, that we wouldn't just go about creating our own religious rites and structures, but that you would work beyond all of that to draw near to us, and to speak to us, and to redirect us. So thank you for this hour, in Jesus' name, amen. As we've begun this year together, we're looking at understanding who we are as Christians, what our identity is, and what the Bible tells us about ourselves. And our hope is that you and I will come to believe more and more the truths and the promises that come from God's Word and that come from the heart of Jesus, as opposed to what our culture tells us in terms of our identity. And so we've been walking through this series called Identity Check, and we're exploring week by week a little bit more of what the Bible tells us is in store for us or what applies to us as promises once we put our faith in Christ. Several years ago, I had a conversation with a woman who was born in Switzerland, yet she'd lived most of her life here in the U.S. Then she finally went through the process to become an American citizen. Uh, 
around that same time, uh, a friend pointed out a man who had decided to become a U.S. citizen right after the September 11th attack on the World Trade Center. Having worked and taught here for years, all of a sudden it was important for him to identify with this country. Now for people like this, citizenship is a big, big deal. Some of you have experienced what it's like when we travel to other countries as an American citizen. Despite being warned about being resented as ugly Americans, my experience has been just the opposite when I have had the opportunity to go to other countries. For instance, walking on the streets in Paris or in Zurich, people have called out Boston when they saw my Red Sox hat. And they were delighted to identify with an American person for that moment. On my first visit to Normandy, I was surprised by the honor with which we were treated simply for being from the United States. One French member, staff member at the American Cemetery in Omaha Beach went above and beyond all expectations to help my father-in-law and me find one specific grave marker there. My father-in-law had a friend who had landed at Omaha Beach on, on D-Day, and he wanted us to find the grave of his best friend who had died that day. So these two guys hit the beach together. One made it and went on. One never made it off the beach. But he never had the opportunity to go back. And so it was a big deal when, when we were able to, uh, to find that specific grave. Kathy, if you wouldn't mind, if that picture shows up that that's the one I was thinking of with a couple of shots here. The one in the middle is my father-in-law standing next to that grave that we found uh, of one of those men who had marched on the beach on D-Day and who never made it home. And, and what was interesting was there was a, a French official at the American cemetery when she heard my father-in-law's story that he wanted to find this one particular grave. She said, okay, if you can wait a minute, I'll break protocol. Because he was not himself a veteran from that period of, of time, she was not supposed to give us this special attention, but she took us on a cart, and she went and found this exact um, uh, grave marker, and then she rubbed sand from the, from the beach where those men stormed in into where the letters had been carved out, and uh, on that particular day, it, it caused those letters to look golden. And she had a little French flag and an American flag, and she put them on either side of the cross. And then she allowed us to come in and to visit the gravesite. And I remember asking, why, why did you do this? Why did you go out of your way and break protocol by giving us this kind of attention that really we didn't deserve? And she said, I want you to remember something. When you come and you visit Paris, so I have uh, pictures of us around, uh, the, you know, the, uh, from that same trip from uh, the Eiffel Tower, and there's Mark Dickinson and me at Gold Beach. Uh, she said, when you visit these other spots, you are a tourist and we're glad you're here. But when you Americans, and it doesn't matter how old you are, when you come to Normandy, you are liberators. That made every hair on my arms just stand up because that's the way Americans are still received in that place today because it was the Americans who came when uh, those difficult days were there and pushed out the German army in that time. And those words are, make me think all the time, when you come to Normandy, you are liberators. Now, I realize there are places where we could go as Americans where we would not be so well-loved. But our country is still the land where more people want to immigrate here, legally or illegally, more than those who are dying to leave. Last I checked, none of the 
folks from Hollywood who promised that they were going to leave if the election didn't go their way. None of them have left. They're all still here. Some of us who were born here are immediately granted citizenship. Some of us in this room were not born here. And so that citizenship was something that came through a process. It was, it was harder to obtain. We recognize that we live in a, in a great yet not perfect country. And even though we may visit other countries around the world, we are only guests, not citizens, wherever we go. Our passports in those countries have to be stamped when we go there and then checked again when we leave. Now, I bring all this up this morning because we're going to add one more layer to our identity check series. This study traces the spiritual identity marks of Christ followers. The next layer endows Christ followers with what the Bible essentially calls a dual citizenship as those who live in this world yet who belong to the kingdom of heaven. So I want to explore that concept a little bit. This week's topic is our new citizenship. So let me just say good morning to everybody. Welcome back to our North River Worship Center today. I love being here with you. I love praying with you. I love hearing the praises around me as you are singing to God. Welcome, too, to everyone who's watching this online. We're glad that you are with us and part of this this morning. And wherever you are right now, whether you're watching this live on our platform or you're watching later on on Facebook Live or on YouTube, let me invite you to take steps toward fully connecting with the people of North River Church. Join a small group. Sign up to serve. Take the 101 Belong class, or what Paul Crossman was just talking about, our, our 301 class, as you discover your spiritual gifts. Become a part of our support team by giving generously. With each step that you take, you are embracing what we are doing as a team and what all of us who are here in the room are also a part of. And we're glad that you are a part of this too. Here's the question that I have for this morning. What did the apostles mean when they said that we have citizenship in heaven. What is that all about? So I'm going to ask a a handful of questions and look at some of the ways that the scripture answers those questions. The first question is, what kind of citizenship is this? I get five answers to that that come from the New Testament. First, it is a heavenly citizenship. So Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3 verses 18 to 20, for as I, I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross, of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in those verses, notice the eternal contrast. First, Paul describes those who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Not everybody who doesn't believe in Jesus is an enemy, but there are still many people who consider themselves an enemy of the cross, an enemy of the gospel, and an enemy of Jesus Christ. That means that this new citizenship requires alignment with the cross of Christ. Then there's a change of focus. We move from immediate pleasures, filling your stomach and all those things Paul's writing about, to future promises. So Christians are more focused on future promises that come from God than we are about the immediate pleasures of life. And there's a change of focus from the physical to the transformational. 
And it's saying that many people, if God is not at the center of their lives, are focused on the here and now, whatever feels good, but Christians are given a new focus that leads us away from just the purely physical realm to the spiritual realm where we are being transformed little by little into the image of Christ. It's a subtle process. It's a God-directed process. It's a time-honoring process. You're not always aware that it's happening, but every once in a while you can look back and say, wow, God has changed my life. I used to think this way. I, I used to act this way, and now these are my habits. And even though we know that we're not complete yet, we're not just like Jesus in this moment, we're headed on a trajectory where God is in charge and he's changing us. So it's a heavenly citizenship. Second, it is an inclusive citizenship. Paul writes in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now there are four clues to this identity as citizens that shows up in these two verses. First is a before and after description. No longer former, uh, foreigners and aliens. As if to say, once you were. In other words, you are outside of the things of God and outside of the people of God. Second, we are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. So it's not just one time that the Bible uses this idea of citizenship, but it's actually a handful of times this thought is sprinkled throughout the New Testament. The, this... Uh, group of citizens are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So this isn't something that was brand new and different. It was actually something that was a continuation of what God started back with Abraham and Moses and all those key leaders we read about in the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament. But what links them all is that we are connected to Jesus as the chief cornerstone. Have you ever noticed the way that a headstone comes together and the cornerstone that might have the foundation of a building set off of that corner. A headstone is something in an archway where there's one piece of stone that's usually, uh, I'm not right sure what the shape is, but it's a cut at angles so that all of the other stones in that archway put pressure on it and are held in place. Here's what Paul is writing here, that Jesus is that keystone and the foundation of the building where everything is held together by him. And if you took him out, the other essential pieces would fall apart. Notice the others who are included in the citizenship. The prophets of Israel. So when you and I read the Old Testament scriptures and we read of these heroes of faith from other times, we are connected to them. It's not just irrelevant history. It's, it becomes our history. People who were the forefathers of our faith and the apostles of Christ. All the things that were new about the gospel of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago are ours, and, and we are standing on the shoulders of these leaders. In addition, those who were God's people before the time of Christ, Jews who follow Jesus today, people from every denomination who put their faith and trust in Jesus, who turned from their ways that would be sinful or against God's plan, and who follow the way of Jesus. doesn't matter what the label is on the outside of the church. If people are following Jesus and committed to him, we are one with all of them. Third, it's not only a heavenly citizenship, it's not only an inclusive citizenship, it's a faith-driven citizenship. 
Hebrews chapter 11 includes this one powerful verse in, in verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. Some of you are well familiar with Hebrews chapter 11. It's often called the faith chapter of the Bible. And it has a, a list of sort of heroes of the faith through the ages. It links us with these Old Testament characters who lived by faith long before the time of Jesus and the apostles. There's several who are listed there. There's Abel and Enoch, Moses, Abraham, Joseph, Jacob, and, and Rahab. They're all united by faith in the God who keeps his promises. Now, what's fascinating about this list is that some of them did not live long enough to see the promises fulfilled in their own lifetime, but they saw enough of how God was moving to trust him right to the end and to trust him for things that even would come true after their lifetimes were over. Some of them even faced violent treatment and death while holding on in faith in the God who fulfills his promises in the right time and the right way. I don't know about you, but every time I read Hebrews chapter 11, I get inspired. I think, oh, these are the people who've set the pathway for us. These are the people who are showing the example. This is the encouragement for us to lean into hard times and, and not to shy away during those times. It's not only a heavenly citizenship or an inclusive or faith-driven citizen, uh, faith citizenship. It is also a focused citizenship. The next few verses in Hebrews chapter 11 say this. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity for return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, it's fascinating when you talk about the people in Hebrews chapter 11, most of these people were mobile, and they often lived as exiles. Think of Abraham coming to the promised land, God showing him, I'm going to give this land to you and to your descendants. But Abraham lives in tents for the rest of his life. He doesn't build cities. He doesn't have a home there that he can call his own. And yet his descendants do years later. And they were content with God's promises so Noah lived on a boat for a while. Abraham lived in tents. Moses gave up the home of the Pharaoh, a king. And they were able to pick up and move when God told them to. The reason was that their earthly alliances were subjected to their heavenly alliance. They believed more in the long-term promise than they did in the short-term gains. And so they were focused on better things and better times on heaven itself. You and I live in a great country, but as great as this country is, we are looking for something even better. And the kingdom of heaven will be that experience when heaven comes down to earth, when the earth is renewed in its original splendor, where God dwells in the midst of his people. That's what I'm pinning my hopes on, not just what we have today. I care about politics. I care about who wins the election and who doesn't, but not nearly enough, as I, and not nearly as much as I care about my future. And one day in the future, we will be a part of that eternal kingdom, that better country, so to speak, that Hebrews was describing. And if we are like these earlier heroes of the faith, we will adopt that same kind of approach too. We can get involved in the affairs of today and in this world, yet 
our greater allegiance is to what is yet to come. And then fifth, it is a relationally centered citizenship. There's one verse in the midst of what I just read from Hebrews 11, verse 16, that has a statement in there that absolutely hits me as wonderful every time I see it. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. What a statement. How I love that description. People who live this way find that God is not ashamed to be called their God. Okay, who live what way? Where our greatest allegiance is, is to his kingdom, not to the kingdoms of this world. The reason was that their, their earthly alliances were always subjected to the future promises of God. He knows that they know him and that they follow him at all costs. So God is interested in you. God is interested in me. He wants to know you. He wants to know you better, and he wants you to know him. And the more that we know him, the more our alliances become tied to what comes next, to when we see him face to face. Oh, and look who else is working on this project. John 14 records these words from Jesus. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. So Jesus today is more invested in what is coming and what is in store for you and me than he is in the kingdoms of this world. It's so easy for us to forget that. It's so easy for us to, to focus on the physical and the now and forget about the transcendent and the future. But you and I are called to an even better kingdom, to live as citizens of that kingdom here, now, in the midst of this world. That means that all, not all of our, our hopes are pinned on the ups and downs of what happens in the newspaper or in the headlines every day. You and I are looking forward to a time when God is finally glorified by everyone and everyone recognizes Jesus as the King of Kings. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So here's a big idea for this morning. Jesus calls us to function as citizens of heaven, living by the values of heaven while temporarily residing here on earth. Last I checked... All of our earthly citizenship papers are temporary. Anybody here got an eternal right to stay in the United States living in the body that you're living just the way you are for all of eternity? No, it's not going to happen. The hope that we have is that the part of you that makes you uniquely you, that hopes that there is something that transcends this life, that that part of you and me is destined to see Jesus to live on in the kingdom of heaven, not to live in the midst of pain, not to live in the midst of suffering, not to live in the midst of bodies that are growing older and sometimes even decaying, but to live with joy, to live with newness, to live with the fullness of life and to conquer death, to conquer sin and all else. All right, so how do we live then as, as dual citizens, as citizens of heaven and also citizens here of the United States or in this world. I'd like to offer three quick guardrails for this dual citizenship. 
All this is based on Matthew 22, some, a story that many of you will know. This is Matthew 22, 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went out and they laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose portrait is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. All right, three quick guardrails for living as citizens of heaven in the midst of this world. One, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. That phrase, that slogan from the King James Bible sticks. Recognize the trap that was being set for Jesus. The Herodians were a political group dedicated to strengthening the link between King Herod, Judea's king, who was a Roman puppet, and Caesar. They wanted everyone to pay taxes because it was a sign of submission to Rome. The Pharisees were a religious sect within Israel that that resented the Roman government's presence and that resisted paying taxes to any project other than the temple tax in Jerusalem. So you have one group that loves having everyone pay taxes, another group that resists paying taxes, one that's very secular, one that's very religious, and all of a sudden they're united together in opposition toward Jesus. Matthew lets us know that they've begun working together to take down Jesus. Here's the dilemma that they created. If Jesus supported paying the tax, he would risk losing the religious crowd. If Jesus opposed paying the tax that Rome had put on the people, he would be painted as an insurrectionist by Rome. Jesus lets us know that there are some things that we clearly owe to our country. So we pay taxes that are due. And we appeal to elected officials when we want to express disagreement. We are expected to obey laws. We fear and honor those in authority. We are to be ready for every kind of good work on the behalf of our neighbors or on behalf of our country. And we are expected to pray for governing leaders. These are all requirements that are put upon us by the New Testament as Christians. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. The second guideline is render to God what is God's. We have an even greater duty to serve the Lord. So Jesus says that we are to love him with our whole being. Love the Lord with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, with your strength. We are to obey him from the heart. First John 5, 3 says, this is love for God to obey his commands. And we are to make his ways our top priority. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Render to God what is God's. Third, when they collide, put God first. There's a scene from Acts where it says they, they called them in again. This is Peter and John. They had healed a man and they got in trouble with the Pharisees and the temple leaders for this. When they, they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is, whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. 
for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. This is Acts chapter 4, verses 18 to 20. So here, Peter and John openly defied the rules of the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And when they did so, they also freely submitted to the penalties that might come. True civil disobedience finds its power in submitting to unjust penalties, which in turn exposes them as unjust while standing to face the music. I love the way these early Christian leaders did that. So, here's the the call for us today. Jesus calls us to function as citizens of heaven while living by the values of heaven and temporarily residing here on earth. We can do this. By God's help, we can do this well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these clear guidelines from Jesus and the apostles about how we live in the midst of this world. Thank you for giving us a taste of heaven through the new life that we experience when we put our faith in Jesus. Lord, hear the soft whisper of anybody here who's saying, Lord, I want that new life. I want it now. I want to taste that. And so I'm putting my faith in Jesus as the one who came to announce that that new life is reachable and possible and as your gift to us by faith. And allow us to walk increasingly in the knowledge of your word and your wisdom and of your truth as children of God who are citizens of heaven who have rights one day in the kingdom that will not end. Help that transform the way we work through all of the disappointments of this life and the way we hold on to hope, knowing that you have a claim on us, knowing that you have a future for us, knowing that however much life may be difficult today, we are looking forward to the better kingdom that comes. Lord, allow us to be those who are also able to invite others to embrace this Lord and this kingdom that transcends all other kingdoms and that cannot fail. Thank you for this great hope in Jesus' name.